last week I was uh, sort of informed that when I get to preach, I'm very, very predictable. I, I sort of hit... Why do you guys laugh? <laughs> Uh, so I've decided I'm not going to be predictable this morning. We're going to discuss supra, infra, and sublapsarianism in relationship to the decrees of God. <laughs> and I've already put some of you asleep. Now that actually is a uh, course of study in theology, but well, that's not what we're going to do this morning. We're actually going to talk about marriage. Uh, marriage is an incredibly uh, profound uh, institution, has incredible effects upon culture, society, and our church. And I have been married for 42 years. Uh, I have at least, I have at least 25 years of experience in marriage, because the first 15, I just repeated the same one over and over and over again. But, uh, and it is uh, something that I value highly. So uh, this, is, uh, this is possibly my last sermon ever at Bethel Church. Uh, so I wanted to touch upon something that means a lot to me. So let's pray. God, thank you for this church. Thank you for uh, the marriages that are within it. Uh, I would just pray that as we look at your word, as it talks about marriage, that uh, you would instruct us, that you would help both husbands and wives to honor you uh, as we live together as husbands and wives. In Christ's name, amen. Uh, and I know that there some of you guys are here this morning and you're not married. You're uh, young enough that you go, why does this apply to me? 90% uh, of you, statistically speaking, 95, 90 to 95% of the people in the United States will at some time be married. So if you're sitting here this morning and you're not married, just listen up. This is what you're buying into. Um, and the first part of the message applies to you regardless if you're married or not because we're going to be talking about the church in general. When a Christian man and woman get married, they suddenly define their relationship only in one term, only in terms of husbands and wives. But I believe that there is a prior relationship within the church which is more fundamental than our relationship, than my relationship to Renee as a husband and her relationship to me as a wife. And that relationship is that of fellow members of the body of Christ. And the reason I want to argue from that position this morning is that marriages, believe it or not, are, are not eternal. There is a point in time and I believe it's at the resurrection, where our, my relationship with Renee as her husband and her relationship with me as uh, my wife will cease to exist. Marriages do not persist into eternity. And this is based upon the passage that's found in Matthew 22. Jesus is having this dialogue with the Pharisees where they come to him and, and they're really trying to push and challenge Jesus and push him into a corner where they say, uh, okay, a man is married to a woman and he dies. And according to the Old Testament law, when that occurred, if the man had a brother, the brother were to, was to marry the wife, his, her brother or his brother's wife, so that children could be born, so his line, his lineage would continue. That was the purpose and the point of it. Well, the, the Sadducees bring this to Jesus and goes, well, this happened seven times. At the resurrection, whose wife is she? She's been married to seven brothers. And Jesus says in Matthew 22:30, 30, at the resurrection, 
People will neither marry nor be given in marriage. They will be like angels in heaven. But I find that the church continues in through eternity. We, were, we will always be members of the body of Christ. So there is a more fundamental relationship that husbands and wives has, and that relationship as being members of the body of Christ. So I'm going to argue this morning that the, the one another's that are found in the New Testament, where the scriptures talk about how we are to treat one another within the church, applies to husbands and wives. It's applicable to, applicable to us within our marriage. And the first I want to begin with this morning is love. And understand that one of the difficulties and one of the joys of being a, a pastor, of actually opening the Word of God on a Sunday morning, is that the text has been given to us. I don't come here with inventive tales and I don't come with something that's unique. I try to look at the scripture and then apply what the, you know, the intellect that God has given to me and then bring it to you in a way that's understandable. So what we're going to look at this morning is not going to be groundbreaking in any way, shape, or form. The message has been given to us. So when I talk about that husbands and wives ought to love one another, that, not, that ought not surprise you. But I want to remind you of it, of the great privilege we have of loving one another. In 1 Peter 1, 22 through 23, it says, Now that you have purified yourselves by obeying the truth, so that you have, sincere, have a sincere love for one another, love one another deeply from the heart. For you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable, through the living and the enduring word of God. The last couple of Sundays have been about God's grace, God's acceptance of us that is not based upon our performance, but upon his decision to embrace us and because of his great love. And that with grace comes the empowerment that God brings into our lives. Grace changes us. And in this, pa this passage in 1 Peter, the pattern is the same. Look at it again, if you will. Purification comes by obeying the gospel. By recognizing that Jesus' life, death, and resurrection was the foundation upon which salvation is possible. And then when we trusted in the person and the work of Christ, we obeyed the truth. As a result, this grace that, of obeying the truth works into us a sincere love for one another. That's the reality. That's based upon God's grace at work in our lives. What is left for us to do is to act upon it by loving one another deeply from the heart. And then Peter again repeats it, because we have been born again. So it's grace from the beginning to the end with our response to it, loving one another deeply from the heart. Husbands and wives are to love one another. This seems so fundamental, it's, it almost doesn't need to be mentioned, but I want to remind us of it. And the love that husbands and wives are to have one another for one another is defined within the scriptures. It is primarily a way of living, not primarily a way of feeling. It's a way of life, not what we feel. The Apostle Paul says in 1 Corinthians 13 that love is patient. Love is kind. It does not envy. It does not boast. It is not proud. It is not rude. It is not self-seeking. It is not easily angered. It keeps no record of wrongs. 
Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. It always protects, always trusts, always hopes, and always perseveres. In the Baker Exegetical Commentary on this passage written by Garland, he says this, Paul personifies love, and he does not use adjectives to describe love, but verbs, 15 of them in three verses. Love is dynamic and active, not something static. He's not talking about some inner feeling or emotion. Love is not conveyed by words. It has to be shown. It can be defined only by what it does and does not do. It is essential for love to manifest itself, to demonstrate itself, to provide proofs, to, make, to put itself on display so much so that in the New Testament, it would be necessary to translate agape, that's the Greek word for love, as demonstration of love. Each thing that love does is something in which the ego does not dominate. Each thing that love does not do is something in which the ego does dominate. A wealth of English synonyms can be chosen to translate the Greek verbs, and their different meanings create a kaleidoscopic effect of the meaning of love revealing its boundless capacities that can never be captured in a word or two. And the verbs are found in the present tense. It connotes a habitual, its habitual nature, its persistent activity. When we think about what love is and what it is not, understand that in this context, this is love's default posture. These are not characteristics that occasionally surface but those that should persist. Love is patient, bearing provocation, annoyance, misfortune, delay, hardship, pain, with fortitude and calm without complaint, anger or the like. Patient is the positive, patience is the positive act of waiting in spite of circumstances. Who of you here this morning who were married that would, would say, Pa marriage has never tried my patience. When you take two people that could be from vastly different backgrounds, family systems, origins, having unique personalities, and put them into a close, physical, 24-7 relationship, it requires that we learn patience. And we learn it rapidly. And while after maybe five to ten years our lives together are not filled with surprises as they, as they once were, we still need to learn patience and practice it. My wife has, learned, has had to learn patience from a whole new perspective here in the last year. I lost about 85% of the hearing in my left ear in the last year. And I have hearing aids, but I really hate to wear them. Um, I wear them only for her, to tell you the truth. Uh, so that she, can, I, she and I can have a conversation. But I don't wear them all the time. And yesterday, uh, we took the, uh, the opportunity, it was such a gloomy day to work inside the house, and I didn't put my hearing aids in. And uh, I have learned that if I hear Renee say something, I need to respond in some way, shape, or form. Like, I heard you, rather than just not say anything. Because my tendency is to go, what in the world did I just hear? Because she was up in the loft yesterday, I was down on the ground floor, and I heard her say, the unicorns have fallen against the glass. And I'm going, 
I'm pretty sure there weren't any unicorns up there. And I'm not sure exactly what glass we're talking about here. So I said, uh, you want to hear what I just heard? <laughs> so my wife has had to learn, after 42 years, has had, had to learn a whole new level of patience um, with me because I can't hear anymore. Unless I, and I'm, I don't hear very well even with my hearing aids. But, um, but love is to be patient. Patience is the persistent activity of love. Love is to be kind. It's to have the same tender heart that God has demonstrated in his grace towards us. In the third century, the pagans called the followers of Christ, they used a term, and it is really a play on the word for Christian, but it means made up of mildness and kindness. May we have the same sort of reputation within our marriage. Love does not envy. Envy is a desire to deny a person something by taking it from them and possessing it yourself. In any relationship, partners are going to have their own strengths and accomplishments. God has, uh, has wired us differently. We've acquired different skills within our marriage. And marriage calls upon us to celebrate them, to rejoice in the success of the others to be our spouse's biggest cheerleader. Love does not envy. Love does not boast. The word means ostentatious rhetorical boasting, the pompous windbag. Today the Apostle Paul said, love does not post an endless flow flow of selfies on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, while informing every one of the minutia of ordinary life as if it was some great accomplishment. Have you, ever, have you ever encountered a couple where one, one of the members of the couple's persistence in telling you how great they are? How wearisome that must be for the spouse to hear that day in and day out, day in and day out. Love takes upon a posture of not boasting. Love is not proud. The word means puffed up. You can picture the person with their chest elevated and their head elevated in the hopes that someone will ask them why. It has the idea of arrogance, that one is better than everyone else, including their spouse. Love is not proud. Love is not rude. The word means discourteous or impolite, especially in a deliberate way. It is used in the New Testament to mean in defiance of social and moral standards, which as its result... Has disgrace, brings disgrace, embarrassment, and shame. It can also mean to act indecently. None of these things belong in our marriage. The words that we use and the tone that with which we use ought to be thoughtfully considered. And what we do as well should not be rude. Love is not self-seeking. Love does not look for that which gives one the advantage, but looks to give that advantage away. At its foundation, our love within our marriage should seek to find out what brings the best out of our wife or out of our husband and what brings them the greatest joy and then work so that we can bring that out. It's really not about us, but it's about our spouse. Love is not easily angered, not cantankerous, ready to take offense. As we live life together, there is plenty of opportunity to be offended. If you're quick to take offense, I can guarantee there'll be ample opportunity for that to happen. 
Marriage is a a fence-rich environment. And both husbands and wives can be oblivious to each other, what their tone conveys, and they can choose the wrong word to say something. But we are not to be quick to be easily angered. And love keeps no record of wrongs. You don't make a list and check it twice. The image here is the uh, keeping records with the intent to pay back a person for the injury or insult. The word is actually used in accounting for keeping a ledger. Can you imagine someone listing how they have been wrong, logging it hour after hour, day after day, week after week, and then bringing it at the end of time, at, out at the end of a particular time ago? Oh, you did this here. Oh, you did this here. How devastating that can be to a relationship. For love keeps no record of wrongs. Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices in the truth. It always protects. It protects the hearts and the feeling of our spouse. It always trusts. All things being equal and without evidence to the contrary, we should trust our partners. That doesn't mean we are blindly offering it if it has been broken. But when trust has been broken, we offer it again in vulnerability. Trust is an incredible aspect Trusting our spouse is an incredible aspect of the love that we have for them. Love always hopes. The presence and the reality of Christ within a marriage relationship makes hope possible. That regardless of the present circumstances, things can change. If both both partners within a marriage relationship are believers, Christ can work in their lives and change can occur. And love always perseveres. Love puts up with just about everything. There are few circumstances where love cannot hold out, where love throws up its hands and says, I'm done. There are times where that limit is reached, but it ought not be the first option. This is how the Apostle Paul describes the love that we are to have for one another in the marriage relationship. And we are not just to love First Peter says we are to love deeply from the heart. The word deeply carries the connotation of effort. It might actually take some effort to love your, your wife. It might actually take some effort to love your husband. And it also speaks of its intensity. It's possible that love can run cold. So we need to be ready to make sure that that love is rekindled and heated up should it become necessary. Loving our spouse in this way deeply from the heart is hard work. I know what what I've just presented is not easy to do. I've been married 42 years. But it is possible as we allow God's grace to be at work within our lives. Forgiveness is also an aspect of the love that we have for one another. Colossians 3 says, Therefore, as God's chosen people, holy and dearly beloved, clothe yourself with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. Bear with each other and forgive one another if any of you has a grievance against someone. As members of the body of Christ, we are to forgive one another. As husbands and wives, we are to forgive one another as well. Because all of us are still short of perfection. All of us still have that area of sin in our life that motivates us. So if we are to live within marriage as God has called us to do, forgiveness has to be part of our marriage toolbox. 
And one thing I know for sure is that without forgiveness applied within a marriage, your marriage is going to be miserable. And your spiritual life will be stunted as well because our own forgiveness is somehow bound up in how we forgive. And forgiveness is not ignoring the defense, the offense. When we have been hurt and offended, we, we, are, we hurt and we have to deal with it. We need to learn to speak the truth in love to one another. How many times have you ever had your spouse ask you, what's wrong? And you're really ticked or your feelings have really been hurt. And you go, oh, nothing. We need to learn to speak the truth in love to one another. In your own life, have you found it successful to ignore the wrongs and not actively make a conscious decision to forgive? Has these efforts released you to love, honor, accept, care for your spouse? Forgiveness is not ignoring the offense, but dealing with it. Forgiveness is not excusing. It's not saying, it's okay, it's no big deal, when in fact it was a big deal. That does not allow a person to see the effects of their actions. People need to take responsibility for what they have done. And to excuse it minimizes and prevents them from seeing what they have in fact done. Forgiveness is not forgetting. Man, I don't know how many times I have talked to people and, and they have said, I can forgive, but I can't forget. Guess what? None of us can. It's not possible. Forgiveness does not mean we erase it from the hard drive of our mind. But by God's grace, it is possible for it no longer to hold the offense against our husband and our wife. It is a mark of grace that even though you recall the hurt, that even though you recall the offense, you choose to live as if it didn't occur. Forgiveness is not forgetting. Forgiveness is in spite of the fact that you remember it, not to hold it against them. And forgiveness is a decision. It is based upon the decision that in Christ, God has forgiven us and that we need to extend forgiveness to those that have wronged us. It is a decision that is based upon a genuine love that we have and the fact that we have been forgiven. It's a decision to let go of the hurts and no longer make them the focal point of the relationship. Forgiving is giving up the right to punish him or her, giving up the possibility of revenge. And forgiveness is a process. And the process depends upon the depth of the hurt. If the hurt is deep and forgiveness is too easily or glibly given, the odds are good that the process has been circumvented and resentments and bitterness will soon take root. One of the most deadly things to a marriage is to allow bitterness to take root in your heart and the plant that grows from it strangles it. And forgiveness involves risk. The risk that you will be hurt again. Ken Sandy in his book, The Peacemaker, says that there are four elements to forgiveness, four, four demonstrations of it. The first is you choose no longer to dwell upon the incident. Number two is that you choose to no longer bring this incident up again and use it against the person. Three, you're not going to talk about it anymore. And four, I will not allow this incident to stand between us or hinder the relationship. 
if we are to live as Christ wants husbands and lives and wives to live, it involves forgiveness. And it also involves seeking forgiveness, which involves remorse, feeling regret that we have hurt our spouse, repentance, changing the way that we think, which leads us to act in a certain way. Asking forgiveness is the change of behavior that strives to never do it again. Confession, admitting and accepting responsibility for the action that hurt. Forgiveness is the only way, or can, seeking forgiveness is the only way out of our guilt. Forgiveness is the sole means to reconcile people who have hurt one another. And forgiveness is not a feeling. It is not a smooth comforting, overwhelming, emotional response that erases the fact from your memory forever. It is the clear and logical action that does not bring up the past offenses and hurts, but takes each day a step at a time. There's a story told of four guys who were serving in Korea. And they, they, they had a house in Seoul, and they had hired a houseboy to come and just take care of the house, cook for them, and clean for them, and do those kinds of things. And, and these four guys were forever tormenting this young man, not maliciously, just sort of in a, an American kidding kind of way. You know, they'd put a bucket of water over the, the door, so when he walked in, he got wet. They would short sheet his, his bed so that, you know, he got in and it couldn't fit, and those kinds of things. They weren't, they weren't designed to hurt him just to harass him. And they finally realized, they came to the realization that, you know, we probably ought not do this. This is it's not a, a good uh, sort of exposure to the American culture, and, and this kid's just a good kid. So they called him in and said, look, we're no longer going to do these things to you. You know, we're not going to put the bucket of water, we're not going to short sheet you, we're not going to do this, we're not going to do that. And and the young man said, really, you're not going to do it anymore? And he, they said, no. And he goes, okay, I won't spit in your soup anymore either. <laughs> Not, not forgiving is spitting in your soup. That's really what it is. I mean, the benefit to us is incredible. We're also to accept one another. Romans 15, 7 says, accept one another just as Christ accepted you in order to bring praise to God. There's a book that I use in premarital counseling. It's called Saving Your Marriage Before It Starts. And in one of the chapters, it deals with sort of surprises that uh, couples uh, encounter in early marriage. And it's a statement, and th this is the statement, that newly married husbands and wives are surprised to learn that they have married another human being. They have idealized their spouse to such a degree that they expect a perfect person. And it takes about five minutes into marriage to realize the person I married isn't perfect just like I'm not perfect. So it's possible at that particular juncture what they, they begin to undertake is to change their spouse. And I'm not talking about, you know, habits and behaviors. Guys really can learn to put the seat down. That is, that is possible. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about more at a more fundamental level. And it's really not a good move. Spouses have to embrace the reality that Christ has accepted their husband or has accepted their wives, so I must too. I'm not going to change the core or should not be about changing the core of their being. Jesus didn't demand that we get our act together, that we fly up and straight, we fly straight, we straighten up and fly right. 
or change in this area before he will accept us. He accepts us as we are. And that doesn't mean that Jesus doesn't change us through time. That's the whole idea of grace's empowering presence in our lives. But he, Jesus, is in the the business of making us different. Not our wife, not our husband. So allow Christ to be at work. You married your spouse the way they were. That doesn't mean God's not going to change them. But fundamentally, you married them the way they were. Accept that. And be devoted to one another. Be devoted to one another in love. Honor one another above yourself. We are to be earnestly committed to our husbands and to our wives. We are to have a strong loyalty towards them. What we are devoted to, we spend time at. Pastor Adam, he was in the first service this morning. He's upstairs right now. He could be downstairs with the kids. But he ran the Equinox Marathon yesterday, all 26.2 miles of it. And he started about 18 weeks ago with, a, I don't know if it was an app or a program on his computer that says, okay, on day one, you run a mile. Day two, you run this. And Pastor Adam has been devoted for the past 18 weeks to run when his app told him to run. And as a result, he was able to complete the marathon. What we are devoted to, we spend time at. If you're a devoted musician like Kathy, you practice. You spend time practicing and you spend time playing. If you're a devoted outdoorsman here in Alaska, you spend out time doors, outdoors, you take time to learn everything you can about surviving outdoors in Alaska. Time, concentration, and effort. What we are devoted to, we spend time at. How is your devotion to your spouse being exhibited? So loving deeply, having affection, devotion, acceptance, and forgiveness are hallmarks of grace working within our marriage as much as they are as hallmarks within the church. And may, be, may God be honored as we live this way. And as you, I would challenge you as, as you read the scriptures, as you're reading through the New Testament and you come across the words, one another, ask how God can make it applicable in your marriage, how you can live it out with your spouse. So that's sort of a general, if I can, uh, admonition, exhortation, encouragement to you this morning. There are very specific things within the scriptures too that address husbands and address wives. Husbands, it says this, husbands love your wife just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. The Apostle Paul grounds a husband's love in the most profound demonstration of love that he can, he can. Christ's sacrificial death, where Jesus offered his life for us. And Jesus offering himself for us is first grounded in his humility. It says in Philippians 3, our attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus, who would be in very nature God did not consider equality with God something to be grasped or clung to, but made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. Christ's love for the church was demonstrated in his humility. He was in very nature God, 
The word is used for nature, used for nature is to be understood as the essential nature and character of God. It is one of the strongest ways to convey that Christ was God. And he did, but he did not consider his equality with God something to be clung to, something to be grasped. He did, not res- he did not resolve to retain that position of honor and glory, but made himself nothing in contrast to his exalted position and took the nature of a servant. Jesus humbled himself. His entire life was one characterized by humility. And if we are to love our wives as Christ loved the church, we as husbands must learn what it means to be humble. Humility is based upon a decision to act in such a way that we put our wives above ourselves because we are being obedient to Christ. Humility means that we consider our wives before we consider ourselves. The needs, desires, and wants of our wives come before our own. We set aside our agenda for one that gives preference to that of our wives. And this is really not the whole, this is not the picture that we have of what it means to love our wives in this culture. This picture of vision of masculinity that has sort of been sold to us within the Western culture. And I call upon us as men who love our wives as Christ loved the church to reject what our culture says a real man is. Let us be so confident of who we are as sons of the living God that we have nothing to prove in the world's terms, but honor God as we live lives of humility. May we embrace true masculinity as found in the pages of God's word as we are humble with our wives. Christ's love also involves service where he says, the son of man speaking of himself did not come to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. The love that Christ had for the church was expressed in his willingness to serve, and in his service he died for his church. Husbands, if I were to ask you this morning, are you literally willing to lay down your life for your wife? There's not a guy in the room that would say, no, I'm not going to go that far. We would all affirm that. But it's fairly easy for us to say that in the absence of a deadly threat. So let me ask you this. When you go home this evening, are you willing to serve your wife? Are you willing to wash the dishes, to vacuum the floor, change the, or, uh, clean the toilet, or change the baby's diaper? Are you willing to do those kinds of service? Not elevated, yeah, I'm willing to die for you, babe, but I ain't changing that diaper. <laughs> because if you deny the one, I would question the other. The life of Christ was a life of service, and he did not focus on the benefit to himself, but the benefit of others. And yeah, it's going to cost you. It may cost you time, energy, money. But let me ask you, what do you have of value that has not cost you? To love our wives as Christ loved the church means that we need to learn to serve them. Is this open? Is this commitment to serve our wives? Is it open to abuse? You bet. Our wives are sinners just like we are, and they can take advantage of the offer that we make to them. I just ask the question, so what? Where did Christ's offer of service lead him? It led him to the cross where he offered himself for us. And Christ's love involves sacrifice. 
Philippians 2 says, Each of you should, not, should look not only to your own interest, but also to the interest of others. Husband, I, I want you to think quickly. What are your, five, your wife's five greatest interests? What are your wife's five greatest needs? What are the five things that your, wa- your wife wants the most? Have you looked only towards your own interest and not those of your wives? Are you willing to, de- to deny involvement in what interests you to elevate the interest of your wife? Are you willing to sacrifice your interests for hers? And finally, loving as Christ loved the church involves loyalty and faithfulness. And I wish I, I, I can't bring you to a specific passage that, that, that says this. Uh, I mean, there are, there are passages that allude to it, but I believe this is vital. When uh, Cortez began his conquest of Mexico and uh, Central America in 1519, he landed uh, 500 men and 11 ships. And when they got all the stuff ashore, all the supplies, all the stuff that they were going to use to conquer the new world, he burned his ships. He was making a statement. There is no going back. There is no safety backwards. We're going forwards. Our wives need to know we have made that same sort of commitment to them. Part of the wedding vows is that we will keep ourselves only to our, for our spouse. So I ask the question, do you demonstrate loyalty and faithfulness in what you read? Do you demonstrate loyalty and faithfulness in what you watch on television, the movies you watch, where you go on the internet? Do you limit, demonstrate loyalty and faithfulness in your thought life, what you think? Are you loyal to her as an individual? Do you ever belittle her in front of others? Do you support her if you have children in front of them? Do you make it evident that she is the most important person on the face of the planet? One of the things I learned, I have two daughters. They're both, they're adults, they're grown, they're out of the home. But I mean, they were rebellious kids and there were times when we would get into it. And there were times when they would get into it with their mom and and I would hear them arguing and I mean, I would approach my daughters and I say, you don't ever talk to my wife that way. I didn't say, you don't talk to your mom that way. That, were, that, was, uh, that, was, that relationship and those kinds of conversations that were pretty evident, but they had to know where I stood. You don't talk to my wife that way. And they understood when they hit that point, where they reached that point, there was in deep weeds. I, I committed to being loyal and faithful to my wife and my relationship with my daughters. So humility, service, sacrifice, and loyalty, these are high callings. Don't take it for granted. It's impossible without the empowerment of the Holy Spirit, without God's grace in our lives. And there is also a word to the wives within the scriptures. Ephesians 5.22 says, Wives, submit yourselves to your own husbands as you do the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ is the head of the church, his body of which he is the Savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit to their husbands in everything. I know for women this has got to be a terribly scary verse. This verse has been used for terrible abuse within the church. It has been used to demand obedience to unspeakable acts, 
It has been used to allow husbands to occupy the place of a dictator in their families where they are the only, where only their desires are fulfilled. It has been quoted to ensure the position of privilege and dominance of a husband. And it has been used to compel women to remain in abusive relationships where their very lives are in danger. None of this was ever Paul's intention. It is not licensed for husbands to enforce submission by any means. The verb itself is found in the middle voice. And the middle voice is the subject acting upon itself. A wife is to submit herself to her husband. A husband is not to demand submission on the, from their wife. Submission does not mean that a wife is in any way inferior to her husband. The creation account tells us that both man and woman were created in the image of God. That both were given the responsibility to care for the creation. The word submission is used of Jesus in his relationship with the Father during the time of his incarnation. It's not talking about superiority or inferiority. It's talking about position of, uh, within a relationship. Submission does not mean that a husband always gets his way. Husbands don't ever, ever use that term to demand something of your wife that she doesn't want to give. She has to submit herself to you, not you demand submission from her. But submission means that a wife has a divine calling to honor and affirm a husband's leadership and to use the gifts that God has given her to help her husband. Wives have been graciously called to go, by God to yield to their husband's guidance and be inclined to follow his leadership. Look, where the, look at the context from which this passage is taken. It's used in the context of a husband's self-sacrificing love for his wife. It is to, submission is what a wife willingly offers to a husband that loves her like Jesus did. That's the context from which it's found. Wives are to submit to that kind of husband. And wives are also to be lovers of their husband. Titus 2, 4 says, The older women are to teach what is good. They can train the younger women to love their husbands and their children. And the word is phileo. It's used here uh, sort of in terms, I believe, in terms of, of friendship and companionship. It's, it's the term for love that's more influenced by the senses and the emotions. It could be translated like. So wives, I ask you this morning, is your husband, do you like your husband, number one? And number two, is your husband your best friend? Or have you found it easier to be friends with other women? It's not easy for men and women to be best friends because we are really different. And I'm speaking in generalities here. This is, does not, what I'm about to say doesn't apply absolutely to every uh, man and every woman. But we think differently. I mean, there are physiological differences in the way that we think. Man's hemispheres are really divided. A woman's are more together. A woman's brain is more like radar. A guy's brain is more like a laser. Women men tend to be more logical, while women are more intuitive. That doesn't mean that women are illogical and that men never are, but we, we arrive at conclusions different ways. Men's do things differently. We enjoy activities. We are more task-oriented. If I were to design a retreat for men, I'd have guys doing a lot of stuff, and I would have some time for us to just have discussions, but it'd be more activities. 
At a woman's retreat, there's some time for activities and there's a lot of time to talk. It's the process that's important for them, not necessarily the goal. We're much more compartmentalized than women are. There's a work compartment, there's a relational compartment, and those two things may not interact very well with one another. Women, you're more integrated. The two affect one another. One is not better than the other. We're just different. And the differences are profound. But if a wife wants to be a friend with her husband, she needs to be prepared to deal with those differences. And I, I would say that the same holds true for husbands. If you want to be friends with your wife, you've got to deal with the differences. Friendships, like marriage, is hard work. But the reward is that God, as you're obedient to him, you get to spend time with your best friend. Friendships built around common activities and interests. Friendships built upon spending time with one another. So wives, let me ask this question. Do you treat your husband as well as you treat your friends? And then lastly, a woman is to respect her husband. Romans 15, 7. However, each one should also love his wife as he loves himself. And the wife must respect her husband. Respect is the esteem for and the sense of worth and excellence of a person. It's a willingness to show consideration or appreciation. It's vital that we respect, that wives respect the man that God has made him to be. Value who they are and the contribution that they bring to the marriage. That we esteem their efforts. Respect is thinking the best of your husband, not the worst. It's appreciation for what they do. It's giving appropriate honor. I know that there was a book, I mean, big big book written, uh, Love and Respect, which really sort of hammered this home. But let me tell you from my perspective, as a perspective of a guy that's been married 42 years, I desperately want the respect of my wife. I want her to affirm what I does, and she does. But I'll tell you, there's nothing that brings me a greater pleasure to have her or to know that she respects me. Submission, love, and respect, just like love and humility and service and sacrifice, is impossible without the grace of God at work within your life. And finally, there is more to marriage than meets the eye. There is, within marriage, there is mystery and gospel. And finally, I want to conclude with this. Ephesians 5.31 says, For this reason a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. And the Apostle Paul says this, inspired by the Spirit. This is a profound mystery, but I am talking about Christ and the church. There is a profound and mysterious element to marriage that is tied to the gospel, tied to Christ's relationship within the church. And what it is precisely, to tell you the truth, I have no idea. I've thought about this passage for at least 25 years. But it could be that as a husband loves sacrificially, and as a wife willingly submits, the world sees the gospel lived out. May God grant grace to husbands and wives to love with abandon so that the gospel might be proclaimed. Let's pray. God, help us to honor you in our marriages for your glory. We pray in Christ's name.
Amen.